This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Before we jump into today's... uh sermon passage from Galatians 5. Uh, Let me quickly say this. Last week, uh, Damien uh, preached from chapter 4, verses 12 to 20. And this morning, instead of uh, picking up in verse 21 of chapter 4 and going through verse 31, uh, I decided to move on to chapter 5. And uh, and this is why. Uh, The concluding passage in chapter 4 is complex Uh, in this way. It's complex in how Paul makes his points. Okay, so Paul's points at the end of chapter four in that text on Sarah and Hagar, uh, his, 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 his points are not complex. They're actually quite clear and they very much line up with all that he's been saying uh, in the book thus far. The the reason I'm skipping the passage is again, not because the points are confusing, uh, nor because they're contradictory. And I just want to avoid them because we've got momentum going. I'm skipping the passage in this venue, at least at this time, at least, uh, because the way in which Paul makes his points is very complex and it demands a lot from me and a lot from you, uh, to really benefit again in this venue. And, and so for that reason, I decided uh, to move us on, uh, into chapter five, at least, uh, at this time. Uh, so again, basically, I just didn't believe this was the venue uh, for us to unpack that uh, and to benefit the most in that. Okay? Side note, over. So our sermon uh, text this morning is Galatians 5, uh, 1 to 14. And I actually have three introductions for you. Three. And I hope that one of these introductions, maybe even two, uh, intrigues you because I want you to listen not only to today's sermon, but to the three sermons that we have planned uh, in chapter five. So really, this introduction is not just for our text today, it's also for the entirety of the chapter, and I think that that will become more clear in a moment. So three introductions, a sobering introduction, an enticing introduction, and a theological introduction. All right? So if you like being scared, pick introduction one. Uh, If you like being enticed, uh, pick number two. Uh, If you're more uh, theologically wired, uh, pick number three, okay? 
First, sobering introduction. We're going to see in chapter 5, and this will be on the screen, if we're not becoming more loving, we're not justified. If we're not becoming more obedient from the heart, we've never been graced. Our understanding of Paul's theology in Galatians is wrong. If we think that because of God's grace and because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we think that our life and our obedience and our growth in love doesn't matter. And the reason I bring this up now is because this may feel somewhat at odds with what Paul has been writing thus far in the book of Galatians. And honestly, if Galatians stopped after four chapters, it would, it would be pretty hard to prove this statement that I have on the screen, that if we're not becoming more loving, we're not justified. But you have to understand in chapter 5, Paul, at least in emphasis, takes a significant turn. And he begins to emphasize love in the lives of believers. If we're not becoming more loving, more others-focused, more obedient from the heart to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, for example, if that's not happening, we're not justified. Look at verse 6. It's a verse I, I actually plan to have us look at again in a couple weeks, but I just wanted to show it to you now to, to begin to prove my point. Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but, so here's what counts, only faith working through love. And so you got to remember, Paul wrote this epistle to the churches in Galatia because false teachers were teaching these Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised to be justified. And by this point in Galatians, we would expect Paul, we'd completely expect him to say, listen, circumcision doesn't count for anything in the end. But what we would have thought Paul was going to say is the only thing that counts in the end is faith. But what does he say? Only faith that expresses itself in love only faith that energizes love counts for anything. Another way to understand this is to say that if our faith is not producing love, our faith is not a biblical faith. In chapter 5, Paul is going to say that if we don't see the evidence of love in our lives, there's no evidence that we're justified. There's no evidence that we've been graced. There's no evidence that we have genuine saving faith. If you go down uh, to the end of chapter 5, Paul is very clear. He rattles off a long list of disobedience, a long list of unloving behavior. And it is like lust and anger and jealousy and envy and drunkenness. And after that list, he writes this. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says at the end of chapter 5, the people who inherit the kingdom of God can be described this way. They love do you remember how Jesus said in Matthew 25 that at the end of this age, God will look for evidence in our lives as to whether or not we truly believed? The evidence in Matthew 25 that determines if a person is assigned to heaven or to hell is loving or serving the least of these. The hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the imprisoned. And so Paul is saying something very similar in verse six of our text. The evidence that counts the evidence that counts is not circumcision nor uncircumcision, not legalism nor licentiousness, but love. Love that flows from faith. So there you go. There's a sobering introduction. That's pretty sobering, huh? If my point and my goal in this sermon, which, is it, which it is, is to show you how love happens, 
then if I could get you to the point of understanding that if we're not becoming more, more loving, we're not justified, if I could get you to see that, that might motivate us to listen to the rest of the sermon, which is how love happens. So second, the enticing introduction. This is for those of us 40 and older. By the way, I'm 39, but I'm saying 40 this year, so I can say 40 when I'm 41, so it's just I'm lazy. So I'm 40 for three years. Here's the enticing introduction. If the thought of becoming a more loving person is attractive to you, this sermon could help. If we want to make our friendships about our friends' benefit and not our benefit, if we want to make our parenting about our kids and not ourselves, if we want to make our marriage about our spouse's benefit and pleasure and not about using our marriage and using our spouse for our benefit and pleasure, if we want to make our work about the customer and the organization and the greater advancement of society, if we want to make it about them and not the advancement of our own lives, if becoming loving is attractive to us, this sermon could help. Finally, a theological introduction, or you might say a proverbial introduction. The message of Galatians is not good news. You don't have to obey the law of God anymore. It's good news. You don't have to break the law of God anymore. It's not good news. You don't have to worry about the law of God anymore. But good news, you can actually obey the law of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't just mean Jesus obeying for you and dying in your place. I mean Jesus obeying through you by the power of his spirit. Said differently, Paul writes in chapter five, verse one, that we have a freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the message of Galatians is not that the freedom we have is a freedom to break the law, but a freedom from being under the law as a means of justification and a freedom from what enslaved us and kept us from obeying the law all along. So if you look at verses 13 and 14, again, I, I will have us look at these again in a couple of weeks. For now, I'm trying to establish my point. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. It's like one of the most important themes in chapters one through four, freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That, that's, a, that's a word Paul uses for the old sinful self. But through love, use your freedom to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If your theology doesn't include in concept you becoming more loving and more obedient, if believing our theology doesn't make us actually more loving and more obedient, then our theology is less than Paul's. Our theology is less than biblical when we listen to the six chapters of Galatians as the original audience would have in about four minutes. And so do you see the need for more love in your life and do you need to know how? And or do we want more love in our lives and we want to know how? If so, this sermon is for us. Two points. See, that was actually a point there. But I called it an introduction. Two points. Two preconditions for love. By precondition, I mean this. What condition, state, or reality has to be in place before you can love? Two examples. There are, there are at least two preconditions for snow. Water and a temperature below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Understand what I mean by a, a condition, a state, a reality? There are at least two preconditions for boiling water. Containment 
and, and a temperature that's above 212 degrees Fahrenheit. I actually spent several hours making sure that what I just said there is true because with the internet these days, it's all about water, like uh, sea level, and it's all about like uh, the ozone layer and all kinds of stuff. I got really confused, but I, I think I can basically say what I just said to you right there, okay? So if you're a scientist, back off. <laughs> I'm not. So this morning, two of the preconditions for us to love and to love more. And you need to know, by the way, that there's at least three in Galatians 5, but for the sake of time, I cut out the third, and I'm only going to give you two of them this morning, okay? The first precondition is to stand firm. The second precondition is to eagerly wait. Okay, so first... The first precondition is to stand firm. So again, by the end of chapter five, Paul has made his point that Christians are increasingly more loving. And in chapter five, Paul is gonna tell us several preconditions or realities that have to be in place in order for us to love. The first is to stand firm in faith. Look at verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then in verse 2, Paul explains what he means when he says yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So the Galatians, we know, we know, excuse me, the, the false teachers, we know from the book of Galatians and from the book of Acts, for example, chap, chapter 15 in particular, uh, the, the so-called Judaizers, they had infiltrated these churches and they were telling the Galatians that they couldn't be justified by God, they couldn't be accepted by God, they couldn't be declared righteous in God's sight, they couldn't be justified, that's what the word means uh, in verse 4, they couldn't be justified unless they were circumcised, unless they obeyed the Old Testament law. And you have to remember the false teachers did not deny Jesus. The false teachers did not deny the necessity of faith in Jesus for justification. The false teachers were glad to include Jesus in what I call their equation for justification. But they taught that a person's obedience to the law had to be added to Jesus for a person to be justified, accepted, declared righteous, loved by God. And so Paul logically shows in verses two through four why the false teacher's thinking was illogical. Look look with me again. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage, no profit, no gain to you. It's a word from uh, from accounting uh, practices. It's a mathematical word in the Greek. And Paul is saying, if your equation for justification... If you add your obedience as a part of what has to happen for you to be justified, if you add your obedience to the equation, you have to subtract Jesus from the equation altogether. Said differently, justification is by grace, unmerited favor, verse four. And if you try to add any personal obedience to the equation that merits justification, it's no longer grace, it's no longer unmerited favor, love, and acceptance. Verse two, if you add circumcision or any obedience to Jesus, Jesus will be of no profit to you. When you try to add your obedience to Jesus, you unwittingly subtract Jesus from the equation. When you try to merit, uh, when you try to add any of your merit to grace, you unwittingly negate all of grace. And so verse three, Paul repeats his point. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the entire law. Why does Paul say the whole law? This is why, because if we think, 
I'll get 90% of my justification by grace through Jesus. And I'll earn 10% of my justification through my own obedience to the law. By trying to add 10% of merit, I negate 90% of unmerited grace. And I have to bring 100% to the table. If I say that my obedience to the law has anything to do with God justifying me, I, I run Jesus from the table and I have to, according to Paul, keep the whole law. And then Paul continues in verse four and he, he's addressing the false teachers. You're severed from Christ. There's actually a play on words there considering circumcision, but we'll maybe talk about that at a future time. By the way, I'm not touching emasculation today. I've completely cut it out. Maybe I'll have the courage in the future. Oh, you'll be all right. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So again, the false teachers, they would have included faith in God's grace in their equation. But by adding merit, Paul says, that's not the grace that God, that's not grace the way God defines it. If your obedience matters at all in your justification and in your righteousness and in your acceptance before God, you have fallen away from grace. You have fallen away from what grace actually is. It is so important to see in verse four, Paul is not writing to the Galatians. He is not addressing Christians as if Christians can somehow fall away from grace and somehow lose their salvation. Look at who he's talking to. He says, you who would be justified by the law. If you look down in verses eight through 12, Paul makes it very clear that he is certain, quote, in the Lord. That means something more for him than it does for us because he's an apostle. He says, in the Lord, hey, I know that the Galatians will side with me because at the end of the day, they're believers. And evidently, Jesus told Paul that at the end of the day, not only would the Galatians take his view, but, but that Jesus would personally deal with the false teachers. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And Paul is saying, if your justification equation isn't 100% grace, you've fallen away from what grace by definition is. Let's go back to our point. Precondition number one for love, standing firm in the faith. Verse one, standing firm in the faith, standing firm is a way to describe faith. Verse five, you have to remember that biblical faith is both beliefs, that is head knowledge of truths, and believing, that is heart-level commitment to those truths. And so the Bible would describe faith in various ways. The Bible, in order to show that on the one hand, faith is not an action in a, in a technical sense, the Bible will use words like stand firm to show that faith is not an action in a technical sense, but it is an activity uh, that we uh, take our beliefs and, and we, we flesh them out into real life. The Bible will tell us to receive the gift of God. The Bible will tell us to rest in the work of God. The Bible will tell us to empty our hands of anything we might bring to God to earn his favor. And so when you look at the way the Bible describes faith, you can say that faith is an activity, but faith is not an action. And what I mean by that is faith is this willful and strong standing. Faith is this intentional standing and this stubborn refusal to think that you have to do anything or can do anything to earn God's love. So faith, by the way the Bible talks about it, is in a sense an activity, but it's never an action. 
And so do you understand what's going on in this first part of chapter five? Do you see this massive call to faith yet again in the first four verses of chapter five? And if you're wondering why I keep talking about faith in a sermon on love, the answer is this. Faith is a precondition for love. An increase in love only comes about through an increase in faith. You can't possibly love and serve anyone until you're standing firm in the belief that God already loves and serves you by grace. You cannot increase in love unless you increase in faith. It's all about sequence. The false teacher's theology was this. Faith in Jesus plus my obedience to the law results in justification. Paul's theology was this, is this. Faith in God's grace alone brings justification, which results in my obedience. The false teachers, this is on the screen. Faith plus obedience or love results in justification. Paul, faith brings justification, which results in obedience and love. The Bible is redundantly clear. At the end of the age, God will look for love in our lives as the evidence that we're Christians. But Paul is telling us here that you can't possibly love until you're standing firm in your faith. Unless you know you'll stand before God by faith alone, there will be no evidence of love in your life when you stand before God. Unless you know that you'll stand before God by faith alone, there will be no evidence of love in your life when you stand before God. Faith is a precondition for love. You see, I find that we tend to think that the false teacher's theology, while it may be wrong, we tend to think that it is more likely to produce obedience and love in our lives. We, we think that if we put our obedience in the equation before justification, like the false teachers, we'll be more loving and obedient. And if I were to say to you, here's the false teacher's justification equation. It's on the screen behind me. And here's Paul's justification equation. Look at these two equations. Don't tell me which one's biblically, biblically right. Tell me which one will produce the most obedience and the most love in a person's life. I think we would say the false teacher's theology will produce more obedience. I think we would say, while I know it's wrong in theory and while I know it can never work, I I would bet in practice it's more effective. If what you're looking for is obedience and love and selflessness, I would guess that, that that the false teacher's theology would produce more obedience and love in the here and now. But look at what Paul says in verse seven. He says the exact opposite is true. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I mean, look at two things in verse seven. Don't miss the irony that it's those who stand firm who also run well. So which is it, Paul? Are we standing firm? Are we running well? Yes. First you're standing firm and then you're running well and next week you're gonna keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying there's a sequence to this. If you cut love and obedience out of your equation, you've cut the Bible out of your equation. But if you get it out of order... You cut love out of your life. So so second, running in Paul's epistles, it's a metaphor for service and ministry and love. He said, you were loving well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from obeying? What's What's the answer? Bad theology. 
The false teachers coming in and and saying, you have to obey to get God to justify you. That's what hindered them. You have to think. Don't miss this point. Full of faith, standing firm. The Galatians were running well. They were loving sacrificially and obeying the truth. And then they stopped and said, I wonder if we have to add works to our faith in order for justification to happen. And when they stopped and asked that question, they slowed down and they started to not obey. This has huge implications for parenting, but that's for another day. An emphasis on loving others in order to get God to love you doesn't bring about more love. This is gonna be on the screen. Think about this. If I have to love you to get God to love me, who am I loving when I love you? Me. If I'm actually and eternally serving myself whenever I serve you, who am I truly serving when I serve you? Me. Who am I using when I serve you? You. This is from 50,000 feet. We're going to unpack it in the coming weeks. But if my theology says I have to do something to be justified by God, then who's the center of attention in my theology? Me. But if my theology says that I'm justified in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who's at the center of my theology? The center of my mind, the center of my heart, the center of my story? Jesus. And so when he says, go and love your neighbor as well as yourself, I'm free to actually do it because I don't have to love myself when I love you. And I'm free to actually do it because I want to obey and love the one who in love with me died to give me life. From 50,000 feet in chapter five, Paul is saying, if you want your friendships to be about your friend's benefit, 40 and over, you have to stand firm in the benefit you already have in Jesus. Only when you stand firm in faith can you run well in love. Or if you want to advance the customer, the organization, the society through your work, if you, if you want to uh, advance everyone but yourself primarily in your job, you're going to have to stand firm in the advancement you have by grace through Jesus Christ. You have to stand firm first in the faith before you can second run well in love. Or if you want to serve your spouse's needs and not use your spouse to meet your own needs, you have to stand firm in the truth that Christ has met your ultimate needs in the gospel. Precondition number one for loving more is believing the gospel more. In fact, you can't actually love if you don't believe, but when you focus on belief, you will increasingly love. Now, second precondition for love in our lives. There's a second condition or state or reality that has to be present in our lives in order for us to love others more. It's, it's in verse five. It's eagerly wait. Okay, so in the same way that water and a temperature below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, in the same way that those are preconditions for snow, faith and hope are preconditions for love. Look at verse five. For through the spirit, precondition number three, by or from faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, if you don't stop and think about this, this is a very bizarre verse at this point in the book of Galatians. 
But listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, in part, in order to love, verse 6, you have to eagerly wait, verse 5, for the hope that comes with righteousness. Paul is clearly taught in Galatians that those who believe in Christ are already justified. Those of faith are already declared righteous by God through Jesus. Paul is not saying that we eagerly wait for the day when we're declared righteous. He is saying that we eagerly wait for the hope that comes from being righteous. Hope in the text is a noun. It is not a verb. Paul doesn't say, let's hope we're righteous. Paul says we have a hope because we're righteous. The English word hope as a noun in the New Testament translates a Greek word for a certain reality. It is not a Greek word for a wished for reality. It is a certain reality in the future. And so we have a certain hope that one day we'll enjoy the fullness of what we have in terms of status now. We we have righteousness now, and, and Paul is saying one day we'll have righteousness in full in glory. And there is a big difference between let's hope we get the hope of righteousness and we eagerly wait for the certain hope that comes from righteousness. In part, Paul is saying this, to love, we have to eagerly and actively wait for glorification. To love today, we have to eagerly wait today for the perfect paradise we will enjoy one day. Think this out. What does this mean? How is this true? How does hope increase love? Let me, let me take you at it from this angle. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but life can be really hard. And I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but life can also be really monotonous. And I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but we rarely experience satisfaction and joy in life to the degree for which we were created. We're always under-experiencing life. In general, we have an unsatisfied longing in the depths of our being for something more. Also, occasionally, we experience a richness and a depth in life that is amazing in the moment, but after the moment, that moment actually reveals to us how mundane and hard and dissatisfying most of life actually is. And so here's my point. We know in the depths of our being that our satisfaction in this life is not to the level for which we were created and is not to the level of what we have the capacity to enjoy. And what we do with this knowledge of life being less, of life being hard, of life being mundane, what we do with this knowledge will determine the extent to which we love others in our daily lives. Think about it. You see, if we wake up driven to find ultimate satisfaction and joy in this day, instead of remembering our theology, which tells us that we won't be satisfied in full until we see Jesus face to face, If we wake up driven to find ultimate satisfaction in this day, we'll never look to relationships as a chance to satisfy other people. We'll look only to relationships to see what satisfaction we can get out of other people. And Paul says to love, you have to get up early each day and eagerly wait for your future hope. Paul is saying you have to proactively address the deep longings of your heart each and every day or you won't be able to love others in that day. You have to say to your heart, dear heart, right now you're righteous and enjoyed by God because of grace and Jesus Christ. And one day, O heart of mine, you will experience the abundant and eternal life for which you were designed. 
But today, unless Jesus comes back, you're going to have to find your deepest longings met in the hope of righteousness if we're going to have any hope at loving other people at all. Listen to this. If the thing we do most eagerly today is wait for ultimate and full satisfaction tomorrow, then we're free in this day to pursue our ultimate satisfaction in serving other people. And we're free from the tyranny of seeking ultimate satisfaction for ourselves in this day because by definition, in our theology, that will not come until glory. There are two barriers to boiling water. A lack of containment and a temperature that does not rise to 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level. In the same way, there are two barriers to love. Two barriers to us living selflessly and sacrificially. Barrier number one, not remembering that we're loved by God. Barrier number two, not remembering that our deepest longings won't be fully met in this age. And so precondition number one to love is standing firm in the faith. Knowing that you don't have to do anything to be loved by God because Jesus did everything and was hated by God in our place on the cross. Precondition number two to love, eagerly waiting for our certain hope. Proactively addressing our deepest longings with the certain hope of righteousness so that we don't waste our day in the futile attempt of pursuing paradise in this life. In the gospel of Jesus, if we're not becoming more loving, we're not justified. But also in the gospel of Jesus, we through faith and hope in that same gospel will become more loving as we stand firm and eagerly wait. We'll pick this up again next week. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in this salvation, we are not just forgiven, not just declared righteous, not just adopted, but we're indwelt. That you have given us the promise that you will carry on this work you've begun in us and you will work through us and you will bring this work to completion. We thank you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even our faith and our hope is given to us in the righteous record of Jesus Christ. We confess this morning that we lack faith and we lack hope and we are so grateful that you see us as those who are faithful and hopeful because Jesus in his life was exactly this and then died for our faithlessness, our hopelessness, and our lack of love. Would you, Holy Spirit, teach us biblical doctrine? Would you, Holy Spirit, break uh, through whatever categories we have, whatever presuppositions we have, whatever beliefs we have that are not from you, would you break through them? And would you give us a more biblical understanding of this incredible gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, our city needs love. Our city needs service. Our families need love. Our families need service. We want to join you in your love and your service to these. Would you give us deep faith in the gospel? Would you give us an abiding hope in the glory that is to come? Would you love through us? In your name we pray, Jesus.